You're listening to The Mumbrella Cast. The Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to The Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. Joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is Zoe Wilkinson. Hello. And Xander Wilson. Hey, Tim. Later in the Mumbrella Cast, Zoe will be chatting to Chair of the Australian Influencer Marketing Council, Detch Singh, about SBS's undercover investigation into influencer marketing. Well, I think the first sentiment was disappointment that SBS didn't actually approach ANCO. Clearing up confusion on when to disclose partnerships. That's the simplest way to look at it. If you're receiving income there's and there's an expectation for you to post, just disclose. And the role of the ACCC in regulating the industry. There, There is an industry body with teeth that will probably be looking at this space in detail. And I wouldn't be surprised if something comes of that in the coming months. But first, the week's topics. The takeover of WPP AUNZ gets the go-ahead. A big telly week with the return of MasterChef, Lego Masters and Dancing with the Stars. And where did it all go so horribly wrong with that milkshake consent video? So, one of the last communications companies on the ASX is going to disappear on Thursday, WPP AUNZ's minority shareholders voted in favour of the takeover by parent company WPP PLC, which is London-based. So, uh, Zoe, you covered this story for us. Uh, Something that's been in the pipeline for a while, I guess. Yeah, so the bid was launched in November and we've been sort of tracking it since then. The Offer was initially 55 cents a share and then was up to 70 cents in December and then it got the all clear from the Supreme Court in March. (laughs) I think it was March. It's all been a bit of a saga. Um, But yeah, now that it's finally gone through something that someone I spoke to this morning about the whole takeover situation, they said that it must be a huge relief for the staff in the business, having sort of spent months going going about their, attempting to go about their daily lives within these agencies, but knowing that there's this sort of impending takeover bid that they have nothing, no control over, it must be a huge relief now for them to have some clarity about what what is happening with the business as a whole. And I guess it's a little little piece of local history disappears because back in the day this was this was STW which back in the day stood for Singleton Tate WPP uh then WPP took the and WPP obviously had a stake in that then I think I'm right in thinking they took on a majority stake and this is effectively tidying it up by picking up the rest yes so their stake was 61.5% and this is just the rest of that piece of the puzzle. It's interesting because, I mean, we were chatting about it this morning and you said that this was an inevitability. And the more people I've spoken to about it, the more sort of of that long story has been shaped in my mind. I mean, it's, it's a significant move for WPP because now that they don't have that Australian board of directors, they don't or they might not have that Australian CEO that has the ability to make moves within the Australian outpost of WPP that may not be in total alignment with 
that global strategy. Now they just have total control and can do whatever they want with WPP in Australia. I guess that will be one of the interesting questions because, of course, what we have seen is you know, a fair degree of change in, in you know, in the, in the last year and a little bit more since Jens Monsies came across, um, you know, sort of to, 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 to lead the organisation. And obviously what you were alluding to there was the fact that, you know, ASX companies tend to pay top dollar for a CEO because of the extra work involved with being an ASX company. So clearly some sort of question about whether he'll stick around. But also I suppose there's that question of, Will yeah will 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 it mean being folded into the machine of the global machine or you know are, are there some lessons in what the Australian outpost has done that could be you know I guess a you know a a, a, a sort of you know template for what goes on in the rest of the rest of the world which clearly we can't know and then I suppose the other thing is also worth just spelling out is um biggest biggest communications company in the world one of the biggest players locally um let's talk about some of the agencies involved yes definitely so all eyes are on the agencies now there's kind of a couple of different opinions about where what will happen to those agencies versus what has been happening to WPP locally I mean opinions expressed to me have been that those campuses will still happen because it just makes sense by campuses this is where they're or the various agencies are all brought together on one site yes yes so the campuses have been described to me as making sense and also were kind of in the works before Jens Monsies entered WPP anyway. Which are the key agencies we're talking about? So on the creative side, Ogilvy is a massive one. We have AKQA, which at the moment is kind of like the golden child of WPP AUNZ. Why's that? Well, AKQA, it's got those capabilities that are considered fairly sexy within the market now across... Um, covering, you know, the span of customer experience, all of those touch points, the data, the analytics. It's just sort of considered the future-facing brand in market, in in the group at the moment. And also, if you look at it, it has steadily been absorbing all of those STW brands. And particularly the creative brands, we're talking about that. Well, yeah, and they've over, I mean... AKQA began its life as DT Digital, then became the AKQA outpost in Australia after the STW merger, and then it absorbed agencies like Tongue, Switched On, and Icon Communications, which is the most recent one. What about the media agencies? Yes, yeah, so Group M, there's a lot of eyes on Group M at the moment just because of the recent departure of CEO Mark Lollback. The opinions I've received have been that Group M is still a very big part of WPP and a very big focus for the group globally and locally. There is still a role for a CEO of Group M to play. However, someone used the phrase whipping boy of WPP, that Group M is the whipping boy of WPP at the moment and within the realm of media agencies more generally that they've sort of been flatlining a little bit. But I think that it's still like a very significant part of the business. It's still a massive revenue driver for the business as well. So, I mean, when we chatted about Mark Lollback leaving, I'd sort of heard that perhaps uh, it, it marked that those media agencies within Group M 
would be brought closer together than the creative agencies. But I don't know where that will stand now with with this global takeover. Yeah, look, I suppose that's interesting, isn't it? Because if you think about, you know, if there was one thing I I always wondered about Mark Lowback coming into that role was came from a you know from client side and generally so much of how media agencies do business is in the trading relationship it's the you know and back in the day it used to be very much with the tv networks and arguably still is but obviously more widely with media so i suppose you've got that part but also it's a world you have to really grow up with to understand the dynamics as well which obviously he hadn't so let, let me test my assumption on it. My assumption is that the sort of person they'll be looking for is somebody who has really grown up with the dynamics and probably has the existing relationships as well. So probably is somebody else within this market, if not internally. Do you, do you, would I be right in assuming we're not likely to see someone coming from outside Australia to that role? Um, look, it wouldn't surprise me if they brought in someone local who is local to this market. I mean, when Mark Lollback left it was said to me that it would have a bit of an impact on new business not necessarily the existing business but because he has come from the client side clients are very familiar with him clients like really liked him and so in the pitch process when he came in it was a bit of a draw card so I think looking at relationships not just with clients but also with the media owners and that trading relationship like it would only make sense that you would bring in someone local. And then I suppose the question is, you know, I, I, I can think of three or four, maybe at the most half a dozen people who, who would be brilliant for the role. But why would any of them take it apart from the money? Look, there would have to be a very convincing sales pitch on the recruitment front. I mean, if you went into that interview, I feel like if you weren't like, what the fuck's going on? Why should I take this? Because really, I think WPP would be selling that job to someone as opposed to perhaps someone selling themselves to that job at this at this sort of uncertain stage with the global takeover and understanding what that will mean for the reporting lines of all of the agencies, whether they'll still report into like an Australian P&L or whether they'll just sort of move back to that pre-STW structure of reporting to their global leaders. Next, let's talk primetime telly. After the wild rating lockdown twists of 2020, in theory, we're back to normal in 2021 when it comes to television ratings. So two weeks on from the Easter ratings break, uh, everyone's made their moves for the second part of the year. Ten's launched MasterChef, Nine's got Lego Masters, and Seven has Dancing with the Stars. Xander, how's it all unfolding? Yeah, so it was definitely an interesting week this week with... um. With, with 10 in particular really waiting for MasterChef to come through and kick off their year. Um, things like The Cube really just haven't lived up to expectations so far this year. So this was the game show with Andy Lee. That's correct, yeah. So that was one that they, based on an international format, brought to Australia and, and you know, it really just didn't land here, um, which is not a huge surprise given a couple of other game show style shows that have come 
to Australia this year from overseas markets, particularly Seven bringing uh, Ultimate Tag and also Holy Moly. Um, neither of them really landed either. So for for a big week for for those tentpole shows like MasterChef and Lego Masters, which proved to be very popular last year, both shows were bringing in above the million mark regularly throughout their run. Um, and both of them launched below that. Lego Masters a little bit below that, 838,000 Metro viewers on its launch. It's steadily declined since then. MasterChef launched to just 670,000 and has also started to decline. I note, I noted today in my TV wrap on Mumbrella that Hard Quiz on ABC beat MasterChef today and, and you know, that has to be a disappointment for 10. Well, when you think about the, the, the cost of production of the two things, I mean, I... I wouldn't be surprised if if MasterChef costs ten times as much an episode as as Hard Quiz, for instance. That that would be. Um, do you think some of it is obviously we we've got this crunching gear change of nine goes for married at first sight, super tacky. You know, you don't really want anyone probably below the age of sixteen watching it at home. Through to then, you've got the family friendly Lego Masters on nine. Um, and suddenly you've got family-friendly MasterChef, family-friendly Lego Masters up against each other, maybe taking a little bit of each other's audience. Would 10 almost have been better? I know Masters is a bit of a juggernaut, but would they have almost been better being an alternative to Maths by having MasterChef on directly against it? Yeah, so I mean, I spoke with um, uh, the EPs for, for MasterChef and, and the judges recently for for a feature, and, and, and although it had been or I put it to them, you know, last year, lockdown, did that make a big impact? Were the numbers way up because of that? Um, and they were insistent that this year would be just as strong. Um, I think it's a couple of reasons why it might not be. One, this is the first season where audiences don't really know anyone on the show. The judges were introduced last year, but the audi- the the, the, um, the contestants last year were, were the back-to-win contestants. That's a good point. All those favourites that they'd had down the years. But, you know, they're were, they were insistent that, you know, it's such a strong product that it, that it will rate this year. We're not yet seeing that. And, and whether, as you say, it could have been, I don't know, put on at a different time perhaps – as I mentioned before, though, MasterChef and Lego Masters launched similar time last year, both to over a million Metro viewers. So, um, look, it, it'll be interesting to see whether they can recover from there. The other interesting point you make with MAFs so far this year, it's really the only show that's that's really brought in the over one million mark regularly. Um, Seven has Big Brother next week. That's definitely worth pointing out. Um where that will go, we don't really know. In the past, we probably would have said it would would be launching pretty high, but but MasterChef normally launches pretty high too. So, and and there are other things to look forward to for the rest of the year. Seven in particular, obviously the Olympics. And speaking of back to win slash all stars, like do we think that format has helped with Dancing with the Stars? The fact that they're familiar faces. Well, interestingly, at the moment, so so Dancing with the Stars didn't launch Monday, just gone. It launched the Monday before that, and the uh, ratings were pretty similar to, to to last year. And this year, most of the uh, sorry, this week, most of the episodes have have been up on last year. Which, although it's still sort of rating in the in the high six hundred thousands, um, is a good result for them. Really, it's it's not a show. I don't think that they're expecting to rate really, really, really highly, um, but. It's proof, perhaps, that that all-star format does work, and that familiarity of contestants is is bringing people back to it. And perhaps without that, this year MasterChef is relying on the judges to be, you know, really, really interesting and that sort of thing. And and the contestants that people don't know, um, perhaps now we're really seeing what MasterChef is like without 
Gary and George and Matt Preston. <laughs> and on that point of like the All-Stars format, I think we are forgetting I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, which was on 10, that had one of its most successful seasons in its entire run since it's been in market because they've just fa- they found that casting dynamic. They got just a really good cast that on screen had wonderful chemistry with each other. And I think that could be a really significant part of that uh, all-stars kind of format as well. I mean, you want you want to see your favourites, but also it doesn't it just warm your heart when you see your favourites making friends with each other on the TV? Like last year on MasterChef, that was a big part of it as well, is that a lot of them were friends with each other and there was a lot of that banter which I suppose is the opposite of the drama that comes from something like maths. I suppose that's a good point as well, isn't it? You know, the fact that there are so many more celebrity formats of these things coming along. You know, we, we're, we, I think we're deep in casting for um, SAS Australia, the next one. You could actually make quite a good living just as a TV celebrity being on reality television, you know, once you've once you've kind of sort of got your foot in the door, then that's probably all you have to do. I mean, Angie Kent has been on everything, so. Yeah, for sure. And, and just looking towards the rest of the year, something I didn't mention before is, is Seven is bringing back Big Brother um, All-Stars. And that's something that really went off in, in the early 2000s with the likes of Carl Sanderlands doing things like refusing to leave the house and all that sort of thing. Um, you know, and I guess what we'll be able to do at the end of the year is look and see how Big Brother went, look and see how Big Brother All-Stars went. And maybe that answers, that will answer your question. The appetite for celebrity-based shows in formats that we're familiar with are really just killing it this year. Next, crying over a spilt milkshake. This week, a series of educational videos designed to teach young people about consent came to light. Let's hear a little bit. For instance, some decisions may be more important to you than others. Moving the line on should we have pizza for dinner may not upset you as much as moving on can I touch your butt? So that was commissioned by the Federal Department of Education, Skills and Employment and is already on the way to becoming one of the most notorious government information campaigns in recent years. Zoe, what the what? Look, I think that was the resounding question on Twitter on Monday, Tim. Um, So this was a $3.8 million contract from the federal government to Brisbane agency Liquid Interactive. Uh, I reached out to them during the week to try and clarify what exactly their remit as part of that contract was, whether it was just building the platform and doing some of the content or whether it was the ideation and production of these videos involved as well because the tender website obviously does not clarify those things when they're announcing who's been appointed to what. It's interesting and what has caught the attention of the mainstream media is that that $3.8 million is almost half of the budget allocated towards the government's Respect Matters campaign, which was aimed to reduce violence and discrimination against women and children. I mean, what the what? it, It was problematic in so many ways, but I'll try and keep looking at it from the point of view of government communication and not interjecting my feminist agenda. Um, it's just very, very strange 
strategy from the government to use such, I mean, bizarre metaphors or euphemisms for issues of consent and coercion. Milkshakes, sharks, getting pizza. I mean, you have to remember these videos were targeted between two people in their late teens. And you have to think about what content they are consuming. They're watching MAFs. They're watching Euphoria on HBO. They're watching Bridgerton on Netflix. Like these these shows that address sex and consent and all of these issues and then to treat them as though they don't understand the issue at all with with the metaphor of milkshakes, I think is just bizarre. It's almost, I mean, to me, it almost felt like somewhere in the brief was don't say or do anything that might be controversial, ironically enough. We, you know, don't don't say anything that could get us on the front page of the, the Daily Telegraph or the Courier Mail or the Herald Sun um, that, you know, that, that might be teaching our children about sex, you know. So almost that fear of confronting anything head on has in the end created something much more controversial and and looking again trying to keep the perspective of political communications in spin with what the government is currently going through with the christian porter allegations the allegations made by Brittany higgins toward that a fellow staffer raped her in the offices of parliament and everything that has come to light in the last month about the treatment of women in Canberra, in the government, in the coalition. And how, and then this was, you know, bubbling away, almost set to launch. How did no one connect the dots between this is going to reflect on that and maybe we need to make a change and pretty soon? And I suppose one of the questions on that was that whole um, tendering process was many, many months, even a couple of years back, am I right in thinking? So so I suspect that probably people didn't join the dots. I mean, yeah, I mean, the tender process was back in 2018, but you're about to launch a piece of communications that deals with the issues of uh, family relationships, personal relationships, sex, consent, coercion, all of that. And that's what people have started talking about in Australia, about educating men and sorry but it's statistically supported that 97 percent of sexual violence is perpetrated by men that the education of young men needs to be addressed and addressed even younger and younger on how they respect and approach women and and members of other genders as well and yet this this is coming out and they know it's coming out and they they don't realise that it's going to be awful. <laughs> and to your point on the percentage of perpetrators, you know, one of the many criticisms was the fact that the perpetrator of, let's call it milkshake disrespect, uh, in this video was portrayed as being the woman. Yes, and look, I don't know how I'm going to provide you a media and marketing perspective on that, Tim, because the feminist in me will come out, but that's that's just completely bizarre. I think... I mean, we had this conversation about Promising Young Woman, the film, and how 
not enough men will go and see that film. And do you know the terrible thing is, I I can't remember if we had our conversation in real life or on the podcast. We had it in real life, but it was in this room. And we were talking about how not enough men will see that for fear of identifying themselves in that film. And maybe you need to have a male perpetrator in an educational video about respect and consent so they can identify with the behaviours. I think having a female perpetrator might confuse some of that messaging even further. Next, Zoe Talks Influencer Marketing. The Mumbrella 360 Reimagined program is seriously heating up with some of the industry's best already confirmed on the bill. Big names include Koala's Chief Marketing and Technology Officer, Cole's Chief Marketing Officer, AFL's General Manager for Digital, WPP, AUNZ, CEO Jens Monsies, and many more. Plus, don't forget that $300 early bird savings expires in oh, only about a fortnight on May the 7th, so don't delay. Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash mumbrella360 for more information. Joining me now on the Mumbrella Cast is Detch Singh, CEO of Influencer Marketing Business HypeTap and Chair of the Australian Influencer Marketing Council. Detch, thanks for joining me. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Zoe. I want to start off with touching on the documentary from SBS's The Feed, which saw its reporters uncover flaws in vetting processes in influencer agencies and platforms, the accessibility of fake followers and brands advising talent not to disclose paid partnerships or confusion on what is a paid partnership, what's contra. As the investigation unfolded on TV over the course of that four weeks, what was the sentiment amongst AIMCO? Well, I think the first sentiment was disappointment that SBS didn't actually approach AIMCO. Uh, Look, there's obviously a lot to unpack around that. You've mentioned a lot of topics that are very important in the space and they're all topics that we're trying to bring to the fore as an industry body as well. Uh, But I do think that the documentary could have been a bit more balanced. Uh, It could have been a a more balanced perspective if the industry body uh, was involved in it. Um, Of course, there are positive elements to the fact that they ran the four-part series. I think it'll bring some of these issues Uh, particularly ones on on things like disclosure to the fore. And as a result, I think authorities like the ACCC might become a little bit more active uh, on these things. So I think there's definitely positives around some of those issues that were brought to light, but I do think it could have been more balanced. And it did raise a couple of different issues within the industry. Did it sort of change what AIMCO is looking to achieve this year and the issues it was hoping to address? I don't think so. I think um, if you think about it, we're not an extremely old organisation. The space isn't that old. So um, we were formed towards the end of 2019. And then in the midst of a pandemic, we launched a code of practice, which I thought was a pretty quick, strong um, achievement uh, as an industry body. Some of these things take time, particularly if you want to get the plumbing and the infrastructure right. So Um, One of the things that we said upon launch uh, as a watch this space or the next thing on our agenda was a compliance framework for members as well. So we're taking all of these things quite seriously, but I don't think any of this has changed our roadmap. I think all of the things that were important a year ago are still important now, and we're just focused on getting that stuff done. I mean, if you think about 
our mission as an organization. It's, you know, to increase transparency and there's a commitment to transparency and accountability, um, best practice and accountability, and of course, industry leadership. So I think as long as we're guided by those three key principles and we keep doing what's on the roadmap, I think this stuff will sort itself out. And you mentioned the code of practice that was released last year. I mean, that was such a significant moment for the industry in Australia, with which hadn't seen anything like that before. What was the response from the market once that was launched? Did you see membership increase? Have you already sort of seen compliance or acting within that best practice improve already within the industry? Definitely. And we knew it couldn't stop at just putting out some guidelines and and saluting and saying, well, uh, good luck, everyone. I hope you can follow these. There's there's been a whole bunch of follow-up work that has gone into, well, here are the guidelines, here's best practice. But then there's also been a range of webinars that we're doing from an education perspective. So we can drill down on some of those best practice elements. Um, And I think globally, ANCO genuinely is leading the way, whilst other markets, when it comes to media, when it comes to influencer marketing, uh, are probably more mature when it comes to the spend and the the percentage of spend which goes into this category. I think when it comes to best practice and education and transparency, I think the Australian market's doing a, a hell of a good job. And how how do you ensure that your members who have sort of signed up and committed themselves to this code of best practice, how, how do you ensure that they're, they are actually acting within it and they're not just sort of signing up to use AIMCO as a stamp on their credentials? Yeah. So that framework isn't quite built out yet, but it's something that there's a huge focus on in the coming months. But I think one of the things that everyone needs to understand as well is there's a lot of businesses that have been operating for a number of years um, that won't be perfect overnight. You know, you can't pivot an entire business to suit a newly released code of practice immediately. So there's got to be a process for um, businesses to become compliant. Um, Some businesses will be compliant from day one because it's something that's been front of mind for them, but we've got to allow other industry participants to actually come up the curve. Of course, it's not just you can click your fingers and say, well, you're not coming up the curve, so get off. It's got to, there's got to be a process to help them do that. Um, and I think that's what we're really focused on. Like, how can we do this in a really structured and constructive way so that people feel like they can do it? Um, and they're only recognized for what they have achieved to date. So that, that's how we're guided by it. It's not like people will get a stamp of approval for being compliant if they're not. Um, but we need to allow for those businesses that aren't quite there yet to get there. AIMCO has positioned itself as uplifting the industry from the start, so investing in the education of brands and influencers and agencies. What are some of the programs AIMCO has in place at the moment? Uh, there's there's a few at the moment. The, the first of which that we launched is a webinar series. So there's a range of webinars that are on regularly around each of these different topics. Um, We've also launched a podcast uh, around these topics as well. So, I mean, the first pillar for us is really education. People need to be aware before they can comply or be better. Um, So the focus at the moment is very much around education. The initial 
membership base was primarily agency land and the platforms. Um, so naturally, some of those initial topics have been very much brand and market aside, but we're planning to do exactly the same thing for talent manager and talent side. So, so those creators can have the same amount of transparency and understanding. Um, I mean, I, we certainly experience it as a business when we're working with creators and they just need the education and they're, they're happy to be compliant. It's not like they're deliberately nefarious. So that education thing is key. And I think that's going to be the focus for the next few months. But there's a lot more on the horizon. I mean, Influence Marketing Awards um, and a bunch of other things on the roadmap that I probably can't talk about yet. But once we have them uh, in in sight, um, we can probably talk about them in more detail. Your your point about the influencers, they're not being deliberately nefarious. I find that quite interesting because there's sort of a growing sense amongst consumers now of skepticism towards influencers. So it's interesting to me to hear from your end that these things aren't being done deliberately. Oh, I can I can tell you uh, anecdotally, certainly from from the hype tap perspective. When we are working with influencers and we ask them to, I mean, every single one of our briefs has to have disclosure. That content has to be vetted before it goes live. If there's, I mean, we recently cancelled a campaign where um, an influencer wasn't quite sure whether they wanted to disclose. And we said, if you can't be sure, don't take the money. Um, If you're worried about looking like you're selling out, then don't. Um, and then pick something that really aligns with you and then disclose it. So we'll go as far as to cancel campaigns if, if those particular influencers won't comply. And tip, but I'd say 99% of the time, if on the brand side, it's part of the brief and it, you make it a requirement, you do what you're supposed to do from a consumer law perspective, the influencers won't push back. Um, we, we rarely have that pushback. So it's just about making sure that we request that as marketers and um, we take some responsibility as well. You can't expect the entire responsibility to sit with the influencer side when as marketers who understand consumer law and understand advertising, um, there's there's some responsibility on us as well. And do you think perhaps some of the confusion coming from the side of a consumer and maybe even from influencers as well around issues of disclosure comes from confusion around the difference between like a paid partnership contra and then free product that had no strings attached but an influencer has decided to post about anyway? Absolutely. I think there's two streams of confusion. The first of which is uh, a lot of people didn't realise that this was consumer law. A lot of people thought they were AA guidelines, there was AIMCO guidelines, but that's all they were. So being only guidelines and the AIMCO not having the teeth, so to speak, um, then why do we need to do that if we don't? If, if it's not uh, a legal requirement? So there was a huge education process, and I think there will continue to be, around the ACCC and what their role is and ad standards as well, um, and letting people know that there, there could very well be consequences around this, and it's happened in the US and it's happened in the UK. So, and with uh, the recent ruling with with Anna Heinrich, um, it's happening here. I think that's very important. And I think the second one is exactly around um, disclosure. And we're, we're making some amendments to our code of practice to make this even clearer 
around gifting and paid partnerships because, and as I understand it, and I'm sure lawyers could explain this far better than I can, but with gifting and contra, uh, as I understand it, if there is element of control from the brand and it's a requirement for those influencers to post, they must disclose. But if there's no quid pro quo or requirement to post, then there's no requirement to disclose. That's how I understand it. Um, we are, obviously will take advice on that, make sure that it's very clear cut, um, and we'll, we'll ask the, the relevant bodies to weigh in on that before we bring that out as part of the code. But that, that can be a little bit complicated. I mean, if you think about it this way, um, the tax office recognises those kinds of gifts as income. So that's the simplest way to look at it. If you're receiving income there's and there's an expectation for you to post, just disclose and disclose it with a hashtag ad and make it very clear cut. It doesn't need to be more complicated than that. And regulation of this industry is a massive issue because of its scale, the number of influencers out there, the number of brands that now want to partake. And I think it was something that kind of arose during SBS's uh, investigation, but also it's kind of coincidentally happened while that first case being upheld under the new AANA Code of Ethics rule about distinguishable advertising took place. What has what has that all signified for AIMCO? What did that first case signify for the organisation? I think for AIMCO, it's very much a positive thing. Uh, you know, it means one that consumers are aware that they are able to make these complaints. Um, and I think that's a great start. We regularly will get complaints that are directed to AIMCO um, and we'll redirect them to Ad Standards or the ACCC. And that makes me really happy because, you know, I heard on a recent podcast uh, on a Mumbrella cast where you guys were talking about the demographics of those people that are viewing this influencer content aren't necessarily the same demographics of the people who typically make these kinds of complaints. And I think I agree with you and I think this is part of why AIMCO exists as well. Right? We'd love to educate creators as well as some of those younger audiences about the mechanisms that are in place to protect them and other consumers. Um, so what it signifies to us is that um, it's becoming a mature category and it's becoming an increasingly sophisticated category. Um, and I think that comes with the fact that it's a successful channel. So you know, more money is going into it, um, more people are becoming aware of it and more people are seeing outcomes. But look, where there is money, there's always going to be bad actors. There's going to be people who, like I said, they act nefariously because they see opportunity. But it's also one of the reasons, and this is, again, why I was disappointed that the feed didn't approach AMCO, but there's a whole bunch of good actors and possibly the majority of spend in the market who care about the category and who have actually been really excited about what we're doing at AMCO and they've come together to do something really positive. And for that not to be shown is disappointing. You know, when we're only focusing on, and I, I feel like Adland has a, a bit of a tendency to do this, is, you know, we can dwell on all the negative things, but we do need to sometimes showcase some of the positive things that are happening. I can I can walk you through over 100 case studies of really successful campaigns. I can benchmark them to other media, and we can all get really excited about that kind of stuff. But um, what tends to happen is, and I know this for, for the things that I get uh, approached for comment on as well. Um, it's always the negative stuff, you know. Um, I feel like quite often um, we love a good disaster, 
and it gets the clicks. So that's where people go. But I think there's far more positive things to be talking about. And I think we all should be doing that, particularly when it comes to the influencer marketing category. And that first case to be upheld with a post from Anna Heinrich for Runaway, the label, it gained so much attention in not just the trade press, but in mainstream media as well. But as we've sort of spoken about, ad standards relies on members of the public actually making these complaints to trigger investigations. And, you know, this is one case that came just over a month um, after that new rule came into place. But so do you think ad standards is enough to cover the expanse of this industry? Well, there's ad standards in the ACCC, right? And yeah. I think um, obviously the ACCC probably had their hands full with the media bargaining code for the last few months. And I would be very surprised if they didn't have their eyes on the influencer marketing industry. Um, I think it would be a good thing if um, they were if they wanted to put more focus on it and be diligent around what's happening. So I think ad standards is great. It's very positive. And I think what the, the AANA are doing with their code of ethics is fantastic uh, from a self-regulation perspective. But there there is an industry body with teeth that will probably be looking at this space in detail. And I wouldn't be surprised if something comes of that in the coming months. When I spoke to the feed producer, Elise Pataka, I asked her whether she thought influencers now had just built up too much autonomy and if stricter regulations came in or the ACCC started having a stronger hand in the industry, whether they would just ignore that and continue with perhaps some of the dodgier activity that has taken place over the years. And she said that it would only take one case to see people start falling in line. Now we've had that one case. Do you agree with that or do you think it's still going to take a bit more work? Look, I think it's always going to take a bit more work. Um, I think the one case is a great start in in the sense that people will recognise that there is something here in place. It's not just guidelines. There is consumer law. I mean, AIMCO will get out there and we're going to be talking to people and educating people, but it's great that other industry bodies and the ACCC will be out there doing the same thing. Um, but it's it's going to take a little bit of work for it to, to trickle through the industry. I think it'll be a bit like that 80-20 rule where the first ruling will have a strong impact and, um, you know, the rulings to follow will capture that tail, that long tail of um, influencers and help them understand as well. But I, I do agree in principle. I think it, it does take a, a ruling or two for people to really understand what the consequences are. And if the ACCC were to be involved, obviously that process would probably be looking at the industry in a much larger view than the way that uh, Ad Standards does where it's just sort of one post or a case-by-case -case basis. What would you like to see an ACCC involvement look like? I think ACCC's involvement um, should be around where they have the dis jurisdiction, in particular around consumer law and disclosure. Um, I think it's going to be important for them to understand the nuance of the category. Wherever they get involved, uh, I think the influencer marketing category is very complicated. There's lots of different moving parts, whether it comes to best practice, data, the social media channels involved, how the formats work 
all of those things are going to be important for the ACCC to understand before they get involved. Um, that would be my biggest piece of advice would be to, to understand the nuance before um, you know, we start making any big decisions. And I suppose the one player that we've left out in this conversation are the social media platforms, Instagram, TikTok. Should they be more involved having a hand in the regulation of this industry? Look, I think they get a bad rap, uh, the Facebook and Instagrams of the world. And for for whatever reason, I'll, I'll leave that to those people that um, give them a bad rap. But if you, if you take a step back, I can kind of understand their plight uh, in some regard when it comes to fake followers in particular. If you're a social media platform and fake accounts, for example, look a lot like new accounts, it's very hard to have someone that comes on as a new user. And if you've got an algorithm that just cuts anyone that looks a certain way, those new users are getting a really poor experience. So I know for a fact, um, we've seen it anecdotally, you know, at HypeTap, we track the follower accounts of different influencers. They are continually culling fake accounts. We've seen big culls that have been more publicly noted, but there are continuous culls that we see regularly, but there is, a complexity around culling things algorithmically and accidentally catching people who are real people. Um, so the other element of that is sometimes these fake accounts will follow credible people or credible brands to look more authentic. So we also have to be careful not to judge influencers that might have some fake followers because they may not have purchased those followers as well. So you've got to allow for some threshold of fake accounts. Um, one thing I will say is a lot of the commentary that I've personally seen around how many influencers have fake accounts, how many fake followers they are, I think it's important people just look at the people who are talking about that. So if they have an interest in selling software that identifies fake accounts, uh, of course they're going to talk about, I don't know, 60% of influencers having a huge amount of fake followers. Um, we did a study on this at HypeTap a couple of years ago, and I spoke about it at Umbrella 360 as well. With our, you know, tolerance, we found that about 12.5% of the 10,000 influencers that we assessed had fake followers that were above the threshold. Um, that's not a huge amount, and it's actually not terribly difficult to figure out. Um, and I think now that we have data on reach and impressions uh, and we can actually see how many people out of those followers are actually seeing the content. It's become even, the, the platforms have made it even easier to determine those things without fancy software um, that might determine that everyone is a fake follower <laughs> as well. Well, it's certainly not an industry that's going to be fixed overnight, but Detch, thank you for joining me on the Mumbrella cast and I look forward to seeing all of AIMCO's initiatives take shape in lifting this industry up. Thanks so much, Zoe. We're looking forward to doing it. And that's it for this week. But before we go, did you not get the memo? The Mumbrella ComsCon program is now complete. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just reading the script. I know I sound a bit moany. With Poem, Medibank, Volkswagen Group Australia, Blooms the Chemist, One Green Bean, Safiani Communications Group, and many more confirmed now. 
No, they've underlined it in the script. Is the perfect time to lock in your tickets for May the 27th. Secure your front seats now and bring your team right up to date with what matters most in the comms industry. Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash comscon for more information. That's it for this week. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Toodle pip. Toodle pip, it's back. Thank you.